Section 46 of Volume 1E of History of England from the Invasion of Julius Caesar to the Revolution of 1688. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. History of England from the Invasion of Julius Caesar to the Revolution of 1688 by David Hume, Volume 1E section forty six chapter fifty nine part six the house of peers during the civil wars had all along been of small account but it had lately since the king's fall become totally contemptible and very few members would submit to the mortification of attending it it happened that day to be fuller than usual and they were assembled to the number of sixteen without one dissenting voice and almost without deliberation they instantly rejected the vote of the lower house and adjourned themselves for ten days hoping that this delay would be able to retard the furious career of the commons the commons were not to be stopped by so small an obstacle having first established a principle which is noble in itself and seems specious but is belied by all history and experience that the people are the origin of all just power they next declared that the commons of england assembled in parliament being chosen by the people and representing them are the supreme authority of the nation and that whatever is enacted and declared to be law by the commons hath the force of law without the consent of king or house of peers the ordinance for the trial of charles stuart king of england so they called him was again read and unanimously assented to in proportion to the enormity of the violences and usurpations were augmented the pretences of sanctity among these regicides should any one have voluntarily proposed said cromwell in the house to bring the king to punishment i should have regarded him as the greatest traitor but since providence and necessity have cast us upon it i will pray to god for a blessing on your counsels though i am not prepared to give you any advice on this important occasion even i myself subjoined he when i was lately offering up petitions for his majesty's restoration felt my tongue cleave to the roof of my mouth and considered this preternatural movement as the answer which heaven having rejected the king had sent to my supplications a woman of hertfordshire illuminated by prophetical visions desired admittance into the military council and communicated to the officers a revelation which assured them that their measures were consecrated from above and ratified by a heavenly sanction this intelligence gave them great comfort and much confirmed them in their present resolutions colonel harrison the son of a butcher and the most furious enthusiast in the army was sent with a strong party to conduct the king to london at windsor hamilton who was there detained a prisoner 
was admitted into the king's presence and falling on his knees passionately exclaimed my dear master i have indeed been so to you replied charles embracing him no further intercourse was allowed between them the king was instantly hurried away hamilton long followed him with his eyes all suffused in tears and prognosticated that in this short salutation he had given the last adieu to his sovereign and his friend charles himself was assured that the period of his life was now approaching but notwithstanding all the preparations which were making and the intelligence which he received he could not even yet believe that his enemies really meant to conclude their violences by a public trial and execution a private assassination he every moment looked for and though harrison assured him that his apprehensions were entirely groundless it was by that catastrophe so frequent with dethroned princes that he expected to terminate his life in appearance as well as in reality the king was now dethroned all the exterior symbols of sovereignty were withdrawn and his attendants had orders to serve him without ceremony at first he was shocked with instances of rudeness and familiarity to which he had been so little accustomed nothing so contemptible as a despised prince was the reflection which they suggested to him but he soon reconciled his mind to this as he had done to his other calamities all the circumstances of the trial were now adjusted and the high court of justice fully constituted it consisted of one hundred and thirty-three persons as named by the commons but there scarcely ever sat above seventy so difficult was it notwithstanding the blindness of prejudice and the allurements of interest to engage men of any name or character in that criminal measure cromwell ireton harrison and the chief officers of the army most of them of mean birth were members together with some of the lower house and some citizens of london the twelve judges were at first appointed in the number but as they had affirmed that it was contrary to all the ideas of english law to try the king for treason by whose authority all accusations for treason must necessarily be conducted their names as well as those of some peers were afterwards struck out bradshaw a lawyer was chosen president coke was appointed solicitor for the people of england dorislaus steele and ark were named assistants the court sat in westminster hall it is remarkable that in calling over the court when the crier pronounced the name of fairfax which had been inserted in the number a voice came from one of the spectators and cried he has more wit than to be here when the charge was read against the king in the name of the people of england the same voice exclaimed not a tenth part of them axtel the officer who guarded the court 
giving orders to fire into the box whence these insolent speeches came, it was discovered that Lady Fairfax was there, and that it was she who had the courage to utter them. She was a person of noble extraction, daughter of Horace, Lord Vere of Tilbury, but being seduced by the violence of the time, she had long seconded her husband's zeal against the royal cause, and was now, as well as he, struck with abhorrence at the fatal and unexpected consequence of all his boasted victories. The pomp, the dignity, the ceremony of this transaction corresponded to the greatest conception that is suggested in the annals of humankind. The delegates of a great people sitting in judgment upon their supreme magistrate, and trying him for his misgovernment and breach of trust. The solicitor, in the name of the Commons, represented that Charles Stuart, being admitted King of England and entrusted with a limited power, yet nevertheless from a wicked design to erect an unlimited and tyrannical government, had traitorously and maliciously levied war against the present Parliament, and the people whom they represented, and was therefore impeached as a tyrant, traitor, murderer, and a public and implacable enemy to the Commonwealth. After the charge was finished, the President directed his discourse to the King, and told him that the Court expected his answer. The King though long detained a prisoner, and now produced as a criminal, sustained by his magnanimous courage the majesty of a monarch. With great temper and dignity, he declined the authority of the court, and refused to submit himself to their jurisdiction. He represented that having been engaged in treaty with his two houses of parliament, and having finished almost every article, he had expected to be brought to his capital in another manner, and ere this time to have been restored to his power, dignity, revenue, as well as to his personal liberty. That he could not now perceive any appearance of the upper house, so essential a member of the constitution, and had learned that even the commons whose authority was pretended were subdued by lawless force and were bereaved of their liberty that he himself was their native hereditary king nor was the whole authority of the state though free and united entitled to try him who derived his dignity from the supreme majesty of heaven that admitting those extravagant principles which levelled all orders of men, the court could plead no power delegated by the people, unless the consent of every individual, down to the meanest and most ignorant peasant, had been previously asked and obtained, that he acknowledged without scruple that he had a trust committed to him, and one most sacred and inviolable, he was entrusted with the liberties of his people, and would not now betray them by recognizing a power founded on the most atrocious violence and usurpation. 
that having taken arms and frequently exposed his life in defence of public liberty of the constitution of the fundamental laws of the kingdom he was willing in this last and most solemn scene to seal with his blood those precious rights for which though in vain he had so long contended that those who arrogated a title to sit as his judges were born his subjects and born subjects to those laws which determined that the king can do no wrong that he was not reduced to the necessity of sheltering himself under this general maxim which guards every english monarch even the least deserving but was able by the most satisfactory reasons to justify those measures in which he had been engaged that to the whole world and even to them his pretended judges he was desirous if called upon in another manner to prove the integrity of his conduct and assert the justice of those defensive arms to which unwillingly and unfortunately he had had recourse but that in order to preserve a uniformity of conduct he must at present forego the apology of his innocence lest by ratifying an authority no better founded than that of robbers and pirates he be justly branded as the betrayer instead of being applauded as the martyr of the constitution the president in order to support the majesty of the people and maintain the superiority of his court above the prisoner still inculcated that he must not decline the authority of his judges that they overruled his objections that they were delegated by the people the only source of every lawful power and that kings themselves acted but in trust from that community which had invested this high court of justice with its jurisdiction even according to those principles which in his present situation he was perhaps obliged to adopt his behaviour in general will appear not a little harsh and barbarous but when we consider him as a subject and one too of no high character addressing himself to his unfortunate sovereign his style will be esteemed to the last degree audacious and insolent three times was charles produced before the court and as often declined their jurisdiction on the fourth the judges having examined some witnesses by whom it was proved that the king had appeared in arms against the forces commissioned by the parliament they pronounced sentence against him he seemed very anxious at this time to be admitted to a conference with the two houses and it was supposed that he intended to resign the crown to his son but the court refused compliance and considered that request as nothing but a delay of justice it is confessed that the king's behaviour during this last scene of his life does honour to his memory and that in all appearances before his judges he never forgot his part either as a prince or as a man firm and intrepid he maintained in each reply 
the utmost perspicuity and justness both of thought and expression mild and equable he rose into no passion at that unusual authority which was assumed over him his soul without effort or affectation seemed only to remain in the situation familiar to it and to look down with contempt on all the efforts of human malice and iniquity the soldiers instigated by their superiors were brought though with difficulty to cry aloud for justice poor souls said the king to one of his attendants for a little money they would do as much against their commanders some of them were permitted to go to the utmost length of brutal insolence and to spit in his face as he was conducted along the passage to the court to excite a sentiment of pity was the only effect which this inhuman insult was able to produce upon him the people though under the rod of lawless unlimited power could not forbear with the most ardent prayers pouring forth their wishes for his preservation and in his present distress they avowed him by their generous tears for their monarch whom in their misguided fury they had before so violently rejected the king was softened at this moving scene and expressed his gratitude for their dutiful affection one soldier too seized by contagious sympathy demanded from heaven a blessing on oppressed and fallen majesty his officer overhearing the prayer beat him to the ground in the king's presence the punishment methinks exceeds the offence this was the reflection which charles formed on that occasion as soon as the intention of trying the king was known in foreign countries so enormous an action was exclaimed against by the general voice of reason and humanity and all men under whatever form of government they were born rejected the example as the utmost effort of undisguised usurpation and the most heinous insult on law and justice the french ambassador by orders from his court interposed in the king's behalf the dutch employed their good offices the scots exclaimed and protested against the violence the queen the prince wrote pathetic letters to the parliament all solicitations were found fruitless with men whose resolutions were fixed and irrevocable four of charles's friends persons of virtue and dignity richmond hartford southampton lindsay applied to the commons they represented that they were the king's counsellors and had concurred by their advice in all these measures which were now imputed as crimes to their royal master that in the eye of the law and according to the dictates of common reason they alone were guilty and were alone exposed to censure for every blamable action of the prince and that they now presented themselves in order to save by their own punishment that precious life which it became the commons themselves and every subject with the utmost hazard to protect and defend 
such a generous effort tended to their honour but contributed nothing towards the king's safety the people remained in that silence and astonishment which all great passions when they have not an opportunity of exerting themselves naturally produce in the human mind the soldiers being incessantly plied with prayers sermons and exhortations were wrought up to a degree of fury and imagined that in the acts of the most extreme disloyalty towards their prince consisted their greatest merit in the eye of heaven three days were allowed the king between his sentence and his execution this interval he passed with great tranquillity chiefly in reading and devotion all his family that remained in england were allowed access to him it consisted only of the princess elizabeth and the duke of gloucester for the duke of york had made his escape gloucester was little more than an infant the princess notwithstanding her tender years showed an advanced judgment and the calamities of her family had made a deep impression upon her after many pious consultations and advices the king gave her in charge to tell the queen that during the whole course of his life he had never once even in thought failed in his fidelity towards her and that his conjugal tenderness and his life should have an equal duration to the young duke too he could not forbear giving some advice in order to season his mind with early principles of loyalty and obedience towards his brother who was so soon to be his sovereign holding him on his knee he said now will they cut off thy father's head at these words the child looked very steadfastly upon him mark child what i say they will cut off my head and perhaps make thee a king but mark what i say thou must not be a king as long as thy brothers charles and james are alive they will cut off thy brothers heads when they can catch them and thy head too they will cut off at last therefore i charge thee do not be made a king by them the duke sighing replied i will be torn in pieces first so determined an answer from one of such tender years filled the king's eyes with tears of joy and admiration every night during this interval the king slept as sound as usual though the noise of workmen employed in framing the scaffold and other preparations for his execution continually resounded in his ears the morning of the fatal day he rose early and calling herbert one of his attendants he bade him employ more than usual care in dressing him and preparing him for so great and joyful a solemnity bishop juxon a man endowed with the same mild and steady virtues by which the king himself was so much distinguished assisted him in his devotions and paid the last melancholy duties to his friend and sovereign end of section forty six chapter fifty nine part six